Well, good morning. It's good to see y'all. Hey, so we're in uh, week two of a 10-week series through the Decalogue. The Decalogue, as we saw last week, simply means the 10 words. These are the 10 commandments of God, the rules of God, His law. And last week we saw, and I said that most people uh, sort of view God through the lens of the law, don't they? I mean, standards, rules, our performance, right? With this kind of underlining, uh, underlying assumption that we sort of behave ourselves into favor with God. Like if you ask the average person on the street, like if they were to stand before God and He was to ask, why should I let you into my heaven? Their answer would be, well, I hope I would go and, you know, I've tried to and fill in the blank. Be a better person, be a better husband, be a better wife, be a better parent, be a better neighbor, obey the Ten Commandments, obey these standards, obey, you know, the, the great command of love or the golden rule or whatever. It's kind of like we good our way to God. That's the assumption of most people in the world. Now, in contrast to that belief, we saw that taken in its historical context, the Ten Commandments were not a condition for a relationship with God. They instead were a confirmation of a relationship with God. They weren't a condition of God's love. They were confirmation of His love. They were not a prerequisite for being adopted into the family of God. They were proof that they had already been adopted into the family of God. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, Amy and I, when we were raising our kids, we made rules for our family. We made rules for our own children. We disciplined our own children. We didn't make rules for the neighborhood kids. That would have been weird. We didn't discipline the neighborhood kids. We would have gotten arrested. But we made rules for our kids because they were our kids. In the same way, God gives these Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel that He had already redeemed from slavery. You see, in Exodus 20, the giving of the law, it came after 19 chapters of God's amazing grace. God gave them the law after they were already His, after He had already delivered them from slavery, after He had already set them free, and they were set free to live as a free people. And so He gave them the law because there is no freedom without the law. There is no freedom without the law. Like I love this quote by Janie Orlin. It bears repeating. Does the law restrict us? Sure it does. The way the sky restricts an eagle or the soil confines a seed or the ocean cramps a minnow. Guys, that is right thinking about the law of God right there. Like it's all gain. Like God isn't taking from us, He is giving to us. And when He gives us the law, we are the ones who are blessed by our obedience to it because ultimate freedom is found under God's authority. Which is, by the way, incredibly good news. (laughs) Incredibly good news for bad people like you and like me who have a hard time obeying their own rules. Like we can't keep the standards we set for ourselves. You make a New Year's resolution and you make it to January 3rd, right? And you're laying in your recliner eating a bunch of Twinkies and you think it's all over. 
That's just how we are. And so this message is good news for bad people like us because God wants us to come to Him before, before we get our act together. Because if you wait to get your act together, you will never come. God wants us to come to Him before we clean up our lives because if you wait to clean up your life, you will never come. Exodus 20 follows the Gospel pattern. God invites us into a relationship with Himself and then He gives us the law. Come to Me, all you labor, who, who are you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, you rest. Take My yoke upon you, My Lordship, My control, and you will find rest for your souls. So where do we start? We saw last week that Israel started with a simple act of trust in the protection of God and the protection of the blood of a spotless lamb. And we do it the same way. Their blood was painted on the doorpost and our blood came from the hands and feet and brow and side of Jesus. See, we start by admitting our need, our complete inability to good our way to God. We don't start by denying our need by our self-righteousness and our good works, but by admitting it. And so with that said, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Remember the context here? It's 50 days since they've left Egypt. And as you turn there, remember the three words that are true of all of God's commandments. The words are protection, provision, and promise. Like every command is for our protection. Like, guys, I don't think we understand what's at stake in our disobedience. We think that that secret sin is going to stay a secret. That that little white lie is going to stay small. Like, we don't realize that the snowball effect is being applied to our sins. Just like in those cartoons where you start with a little snowball at the top of a mountain and you roll it down the hill and by the time it gets to, to the bottom, it's swallowing whole towns. That's what our sin does. That's what the enemy wants to do with our sin. Every command of God is for our protection. And every command of God is for our provision. Like, I don't think we understand what's at stake when it comes to the blessing of obedience. Guys, God does the very th same thing with the snowball effect. He takes those little acts of obedience, those quiet acts that no one sees, and He Stop, starts them rolling down that hill to show what He can do with them. It's for our protection. It's for our provision. And every command points to a promise. Like we make a huge mistake if we pit the Old Testament against the New Testament. Against the, the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. If we, if we pit the law against God's grace. Guys, the law is God's grace. To a nation that had been raised for 430 years by wolves, basically, in Egypt. In a polytheistic pagan culture, God gives them His standard that points to Himself and points to His Son. It's all grace. And so with that said, Exodus 20 verse 1 says, And God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery. You've been set free, and so you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, beyond me, beside me, along with me, in addition to me. Like, don't rank me as first on your priority list. I want to be the whole list. Like, don't think that you've done me a favor if I'm at the top of your list. You don't need a list. You need me. That's what God is saying here. It's like I said last week, telling your wife that, hey, you're my number one girl. Doesn't mean very much if you have a number two girl and a number three girl. God wants to be your one and only. And the first word from God calls for our unrivaled allegiance. Like we need to pledge our allegiance and our loyalty to God alone. And by the way, for the nation of Israel encamped around Mount Sinai, this was no small ask. Like Egyptian culture and the culture of every era of, of that day, you know, uh, in every different uh, nation was completely polytheistic. They believed in many gods, and each of these gods had a realm or role that they were in charge of, that they were in control of. And so instead of looking to multiple deities to meet your many, many varied needs, instead of having a god for healing, and then a different god for agriculture, and then a different god for security, and a different God for your sex life. God is saying, I am the one true and living God. There is no other. All the idols are demons. All the idols are false. All the idols are empty promises. I want to be the one and only that you depend on for everything. Whatever the issue is, I want you to come to me. I am who I am. Let me be all that I am for you. Recognize me for who I am and live in that and line up with that reality. God is saying, in fact, if you settle this one issue, just this one issue, like recognizing me for who I am, letting me be front and center in your life, coming to me for all of your needs, then everything else in your life will take care of itself because I will be the one taking care of you. Like this is the starting point for anyone, anyone who wants to relate to God correctly. Submission to His sovereignty. Submission to His Lordship. This is the foundation of the whole law of God. And later it's captured in the Shema, the foundational confession of all of Israel. Deuteronomy 6 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And when God gives that command to Israel, He's not saying simply stir up affection for me. Like your love for me should surpass your love for your newborn baby. That's not what He's saying. What He's saying is in a Hebrew culture, love equals loyalty. I should be supreme in your life. Like I should be your highest allegiance, your highest loyalty. Swear your allegiance to me. And so if there is something in your life that is so important that you have to organize your whole life around it, 
Like you have to make all of your decisions around that thing. Understand, for you, that thing is your God. Because there's only one person who's supposed to have that role. Like John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. Like it could be anything. Like we have the ability, the skill set. Like it's in our wheelhouse to make anything in our lives into an idol. Like that's just who we are. We make too much of things that are trivial and not enough of the things that are enormous. Like we're our human heart is an idol factory. And like I said, we can do it with anything. It could be something as innocent as the decision to buy a boat. Like nothing's wrong with owning a boat. They just think, you know what? I would love to have a boat. Nothing's wrong with a boat. I like to go fishing, you know, once a month or once every other month. It'd be great to have my own boat. And so they save up their money and then they buy a boat and that boat ends up owning them because now they have to justify the expense they made. And if they're only out once every six or eight weeks, man, that's a huge waste of money. And they find themselves out on the lake way more often neglecting the things in life that truly matter, being out of fellowship with other believers, being away from their own family. But guys, once again, it's only a boat. And yet for them... It's become an idol. For others, it's not an idol. Like my idols are different than your idols. And your idols are different than my idols. But we can turn anything into something that it is not supposed to be. Matthew Henry described our idolatry this way. He writes, Pride makes a God of self. By the way, remember that in the month of June. Pride makes a God of self. Covetousness makes a God of money. Sensuality makes a God of the belly. Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God, that, whatever it is, we do in effect make a God of. And guys, the danger is that we were made by God. We were designed not to have anything else in our life front and center except Him. When good things become God things, they become bad things. They become idolatrous things. They become destructive things. The first word calls for our un rivaled allegiance. And the second word from God, the second command, flows naturally from the first. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. What's God saying here? Second command. You shall not worship idols. Now guys, at first blush, this may sound like it's just a repeat of the first commandment, right? But it actually introduces a whole new concept, a new wrinkle, a new problem that we all have. And uh, you see, the second command is not saying don't make idols of other gods. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying, okay, uh, it's okay to have a Jesus idol, but don't stick a Baal idol beside it. That doesn't work. That's not what it's saying. I mean, all that's covered in the first commandment. 
The second commandment, uh, God is saying, listen, I don't want you to attempt in any way to build any kind of a monument or statue or idol or image that represents me. Like you must approach me on my terms. I'm the one who calls the shots, not you. The second word calls for our undiluted worship. God is saying to the nation of Israel, I will not be watered down. I will not be trivialized by you. The first command is against worshiping the wrong God and the second command is against worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Like God is saying, listen, don't go out into the forest and cut down a tree and skin off the bark and fashion it into some idol that you somehow imbue with some sort of spiritual power in an attempt to bring me down to your level or serve as a stand-in for me in any way. Do not do it. Like the second word forbids self-willed worship. Self-willed worship. Worshiping God as we choose rather than as He demands. Like this is really the theme for the whole book of Leviticus. I remember, you know, for those of you who go to church here, you know that there's a few of us who in January, take the month of January to do what we call the shred. We take 30 days, sometimes 31 days, to read through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Like in just 30 days, you're spending a couple hours a day getting through the Bible. And guys, I remember the very first time I did this years ago on a challenge from a friend of mine at another church, and I ended up reading the entire Bible in 40 days. I'd never read the Bible that fast, and I read the book of Leviticus Leviticus in one day, which by the way, is the only way to read Leviticus. <laughs> Like, I, I remember reading Leviticus slow and just thinking, man, God really hates mold. Like, I don't get it. Like, why does God hate mold so much? Like, why, why are all these rules? I just don't understand. I, I got caught up in all the, the details of it. But when I sat down and in a couple hours read from beginning to end the full book of Leviticus, it was like a light came on. And I got it. And I remember writing in the margin of my Bible God alone determines how He will be approached. See, that's what the law is telling us. God alone determines how He will be worshipped, how He will be approached. Only God does that. And in the middle of the book of Leviticus, He gives us an object lesson with the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who had just been ordained to the priesthood and then got it in their head somehow to offer up what the Scripture calls strange fire or unauthorized fire before the Lord. Like they must have thought they were a big deal in their new robes, in their new title. And so they thought, even though God told us to do it this way, we're going to do it this way. And it says fire came from heaven and consumed them. It's kind of like God is saying, hey, you like fire? Okay. But really what God was saying is, there will be no self-willed worship. Stated simply, we are not to make images that represent God in any form, and we are not to worship images 
of any kind. Which, by the way, also in that culture, was no small ask. Like it would have been very difficult for these Israelites to grasp coming out of the culture of Egypt where they had lived for 400 years. Everyone who had a God had a representation of that God. But here God is saying, hey, you know what? No more of that business. You can leave that behind in Egypt. I am calling you to something else. The second commandment demanded their undiluted worship. And so even as this command is given, because I read the book of Leviticus this week, as this command is given, the people are kind of listening to the voice of God. They're saying, Amen. They're all with it. Like they're saying, hey, whatever the Lord tells us to do, we will do. And then just a very few days later, we have the incident with the golden calf. Like y'all know that story in the Bible or you've seen the movie with Charlton Heston. So you get that, right? Like Moses, after giving the Ten Commandments, goes up to the mountain to meet with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people begin to be fearful. They begin to worry. And they wanted something that could make them feel safe. They wanted to bring God down to their level to be something they could see, something that was tangible. And so they bring their gold to Aaron and he fashions for them a golden calf. And understand this, for the nation of Israel, the golden calf in their minds was an image of Yahweh. I mean, this was worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. Approaching God in a way that did not please Him. And by the way, they only lasted 40 days. Like 40 days. Like this is the people who saw the 12 plagues, the very same people who saw God break the back of the most powerful nation in the world with 12 plagues, killing the firstborn of Egypt with the 10th plague, and then bringing them out with a strong hand and with great wealth as the people, for some reason, God moved in their hearts that Israel had favor with the Egyptians who had just lost children in their families and their stock and their fields and they bring their gold to the Israelites and they wander out into the wilderness following Moses where they're at the edge of the Red Sea about to die and God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. God drowns the army of Egypt. He feeds them with manna in the morning, quail at night, water from the rock. They saw all of this. God speaks He gives them the law. It is terrifying. They hear the voice of God and 40 days later they say, hey, you know what? When I think of God, I think of a little cow. How about y'all? Like how ridiculous is that? But the truth is, guys, if you're dating idolatry, it's a hard girlfriend to break up with. Like it gets a hold of you. Like idolatry is attractive because it guarantees the presence of that God and its full attention. You carve it. You cover it with gold. And now you imbue it with a spiritual power. You think it's a demonic power, but it's in your presence and it has your full attention and you you have its full attention. 
Idolatry was attractive because it created a sense of a contractual agreement with God. Right? Obligating God to give you whatever you wanted if you just met His terms. And you get to write the terms. You get to make them up yourself. This is what God expects. I do these things and now God has to bless me. That's the rules. Idolatry was attractive because it was easy and convenient. All your God wanted was a sacrifice. He didn't want your life. Like He didn't want your heart. He just wanted you to kill something and bring it to Him. Idolatry was also attractive because it was normal. Everyone did religion this way in the ancient world. And mainly, idolatry was attractive because it was so indulgent. Idolatry was a big show. It was a feast for the senses. Sight, sound, smell, taste, and it often had an erotic element to it where the temple prostitutes came out and you somehow were able to bless the crops by paying a prostitute to sleep with her. Now, it would be easy for us in 2023 to look back on these poor souls 3,500 years ago and think, man, I'm so glad that we're past that age of just spiritual cluelessness. Like, what a mess. Like, I'm so glad we've moved past that ignorance. But I have to ask, have we? Like, could we, in fact, Christians, could we be, in a sense, unwitting idolaters? Worshiping our own lowercase g, God, that we call by the right name, but we worship in the wrong way. So before you dismiss the struggles of the Israelites encamped around Mount Sinai as some sort of simple Bronze Age ignorance, let's examine our own hearts. Here's just a few statements. You are an idolater if you entertain thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Like you know that that's the essence of idolatry. The essence of idolatry is to entertain a thought about God that is unworthy of Him. Which means, Christians, like our life goal should be, like it should be that every thought I have of God lines up perfectly with what He has revealed about Himself. Like my life goal should be to think rightly about God in every aspect of life. You are an idolater if you focus on the attributes of God that you enjoy or are comforted by while neglecting the ones that you don't. God is love, but He's not a consuming fire. He's certainly not a God of wrath. A God who's angry at the wicked every day. Oh, certainly not. That's idolatry. You're an idolater if you approach God on your own terms, not on His. You're an idolater if you use your obedience to God to in some way obligate Him. But God, I did this. I gave that. I sacrificed. So you have to. You are an idolater if your joy hinges on you being able to coerce God in some way to do your bidding as if you can command Him. The prosperity gospel is idolatry. And you are an idolater if you shrink God down to a manageable and controllable size. Like if you make God a day of the week, 90 minutes on Sunday morning. 
If you make them all about a location, this church building or any other. If you make God an obligation that you can fulfill or a box that you can check, you are an unwitting idolater. And so to you, God says, don't you dare, don't you dare try to make me something that you can fit into your room or on a shelf or on a day of the week or in some sort of compartment in your heart. I'm bigger than that. I'm greater than that. The universe itself cannot contain me. Don't try to make me manageable. Don't try to bring me down to your level. Don't compartmentalize me. The one true and living God says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What God is saying is simply this. This thing that we are starting right now, this is an exclusive relationship. That's what this is. Like God's not insecure. He's not the jealous boyfriend wondering what his girlfriend is talking about when she's not with him. That's not the image we get of God. He's only asking for what any husband or wife would ask for of their spouse. Like how would it go over, guys, if your wife brought a date for dinner tonight? How would you feel? (laughs) That would be a mess. And yet, guys, I think I think that we often, church, spiritually put ourselves in the arms of other lovers when we lean on things other than Him and ask of things other than Him to fulfill what only He can do. Here's the reality. Our lives work best under the authority of God. Our lives work best with God at the center of our life. Our lives work best when we run to freedom from the slavery of sin and idolatry. Like, idolatry always leads to slavery. 2 Peter 2.19 says, For you are a slave to whatever control you, controls you. Like, idolatry says, all I want is a little sacrifice. I just want a little, but it ends up taking everything, giving you nothing, leaving you empty and diminished, and... On the other hand, Yahweh says, no, I want everything. All of you, all of your life. No compartments left out. But then He gives it all back and so much more leaving us full. The first two commandments make it clear that God wants a personal and intimate and an exclusive relationship with all of His children. Janie Ortlands explains these two commands this way. She says that the first And second commandments go together. The first commandment tells us whom we should serve. The second commandment tells us how we should worship. The first commandment teaches that we must have no false gods. The second tells us that we must have no false worship of the true God. The first tells us that there can be no substitute for God. The second teaches us there must be no misrepresentations of the true God. The first commandment shows us the exclusivity of our relationship with God. And the second tells us of the magnitude of that relationship. And here it is, guys. God is not your mascot. He's your master. God is not some trinket that you carry with you or some good luck charm 
like linked to your keychain. He is Lord and God. He will not let you trivialize Him. Worship the right God in the right way. In fact, this command and these first two commandments are so significant that they come with a dire warning. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Underline that word visiting. Visiting, not punishing. God's not punishing you for the sins of your father. But God is warning, listen, if you limit me to just a day of the week or a location, if you try to shrink me down to a manageable size, if you try to bring me down to your level, not only will you suffer for that, but your kids will suffer. And your grandkids will suffer. And your great-grandkids will suffer. Like we all know that. Right? We all know the effects of multi-generational sin, don't we? Growing up in the home of somebody who disregards God has a powerful natural, not supernatural, but natural effect on you. Like I wonder how many of you have experienced this. Like your life was forever impacted by the adultery of a parent or by their neglect or their abuse or their addictions or their divorce that came out of nowhere and you thought you're the one to blame when it was no fault of yours. Idolatry is contagious. It causes trouble for generation after generation after generation. Is that fair? Of course not. But is it true? Absolutely. However, this is also true. But showing steadfast love to how many? to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Like growing up in a home where God is honored has a powerful natural, not supernatural, but natural effect on the kids who grow up in that home. I wonder how many of y'all have experienced that. In fact, I thought, man, oh, that we would all, church, live long enough to see God show Himself faithful to this promise. Like to see the powerful effect that, that your little acts of obedience and faithfulness to Him have on your children for years to come. And see them pass on that faithfulness, but in a snowball effect to their children and their children's children. I mean, that's what God is promising here. And we need a revival in this church and in this country of trust in a God who makes promises like this. But often our pushback to radical obedience to God is thinking that He is somehow holding out on us or that we're missing out if we surrender to Him and yet nothing can be further from the truth. Every command of God is for our protection. It's for our provision. And every command of God points to a promise. And as I close, guys, hear this. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of those promises. Every single one. 
He is the yes and the amen from God. Jesus Christ said that he was the fulfillment of the law and specifically, he is the fulfillment of the second commandment, the second word from God. I mean, think about it this way. What we were forbidden to do, bring God down to our level. God did. What we were commanded not to do to make an image of the invisible God, God Himself did. John 1 tells us that no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is Himself God has made Him known. Hebrews 1 declares of Jesus that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And then Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. For us and for our salvation, He came down. Kevin DeYoung explains it this way. To look upon Christ was to look upon the face of Him who could not be seen on Sinai. Jesus did the seemingly impossible. He allowed humans to see the God who cannot be seen. That's the mystery and majesty of the Incarnation. We don't need pictures. We don't need statues. We don't need icons. We have the icon. Christ is the image, Greek word, icon of the invisible God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that in a world that pulls us toward idolatry and emptiness and living in our human flesh in this world and being pulled left and right in all the wrong directions, You came down. Think of Israel encamped around that mountain fearful that Moses had been gone in 40 days and they sinned a great sin. And yet, Lord Jesus, we have a fearful world and we're part of it. And it would be easy for us, just like them, to reach for things that will not satisfy, that are not You, to misrepresent You in some way, but to a fearful world You came down to our level. You put on flesh and lived among us. And we beheld Your glory. We thank You for that promise. And we thank You for this table and these elements that represent Your body and so represent the very image of God. Bless this table. Bless this church as we take from Your body and Your blood for our spiritual nourishment, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.